Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 6.1 The Army of the Dead. So, I'm back. I hope y'all didn't miss me too much. It was a very nice vacation, but as it was, I'm glad to be back. I'm excited for this next wonder. Just to recap, we have looked at the first five wonders on our list the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Great Temples of Abu Simbel, the Ishtar Gate of Babylon the Colossus of Rhodes, and Trajan's Bridge. All five of these wonders were in what we call the Known World, which consisted of the Eastern Mediterranean and Mesopotamia in ancient times. Granted, Trajan's Bridge was a little further out compared to the other four, but it is nothing compared to the sixth wonder on the list. For this wonder, we are traveling far away from the quote-unquote Known World, to perhaps one of the most advanced, sophisticated, and powerful empires of the ancient world, China. China, all the way on the eastern side of Asia, was home to some of the most powerful kingdoms and empires in history. In fact, the Chinese were the dominant nation in the world for hundreds of years after the fall of Rome, during what we call the Middle Ages of Europe. While Europe was struggling through the Dark Ages and the plague, and Mesopotamia in a state of constant religious warfare between the Christians and the Muslims, the Chinese were busy building and expanding their empire far across East Asia. They completely controlled not just China, but had substantial influence in India, Japan, Siam, Indonesia, and Korea. Their traders traded with Rome via the Silk Road, and they traded with Mesopotamia and Africa by sea. The Chinese were even important players in the spice and slave trade out of the island of Zanzibar off the coast of Tanzania. But long before any of this, the first Chinese emperor, upon his death, ordered the construction of an army of the dead to guard his tomb. This army, the sixth wonder of the ancient world, would become known as the Terracotta Army. But what the heck is a Terracotta Army? By the end of this episode, that name will make sense. But before we get into the details of this quote-unquote army of the dead, as always, some context first. China was not always a world superpower. It started out pretty much the same as Mesopotamia or Europe, a collection of small kingdoms and city-states fighting each other for control of resources or trade routes. And its history begins about the same time as those of Mesopotamia. And just as Sargon the Great, the great Assyrian general who conquered the Mesopotamian city-states and small kingdoms to form the first great Assyrian empire, so one family conquered all the neighboring tribes, kingdoms, and cities to form the first empire and dynasty of China. That family was the Qin family. Now, before we get too far into this, I want to apologize in advance. I will be doing my best with the pronunciation of all these Chinese names, but I'm sure I'm going to butcher all of them sooner rather than later. 
Now, the Qin Dynasty was not your traditional dynasty. But before we get to the Qin Dynasty, we have to look at China as a whole before it became an empire. The year is 400 BC. China is engulfed in a period which would become known as the Period of the Warring States. There were nine major Chinese states, and they were in a state of constant warfare with each other for more than 200 years. By the mid-300s BC, though, the states had sort of fallen into a sort of hierarchy. The easternmost state, the Qi, was the wealthiest state, and thus had the largest army. But the Qin, all the way to the west, and the Chu, to the south, were the biggest territory-wise. I have a map of all this up on the website 21wonderspodcast.com for reference. But the tense peace that the states would establish between each other would not last very long. And the entirety of China could be there for the taking if you played your cards right. The westernmost state, the Qin, would be the ones to take advantage of the situation and began to conquer the other states. The groundwork for the conquest of China began in the mid to early 300s BC. A man by the name of Shang Yang came up with a revolutionary proposition for the army of the Qin. Up until that point, only the wealthy nobility could afford to field an army, because they were the only ones who had enough money to pay soldiers. But Shang Yang came up with a system that paid men with land when they would enlist, rather than monetary or goods-based payment for service. If this concept sounds familiar, it's because the Romans did something very similar. But by doing this, Shang Yang created an army that was cheaper and larger than any army the nobility of the other states could ever hope to field. It also helped that the Qin was one of the largest states, and thus had land to divvy out. The payment of land was attractive to men as it would guarantee them something to come back to after the war was over, and it would be an easy way to ensure their family's safety and survival. As news of this new form of payment went out, men from all across China moved to Ch'in and enlisted in the army, hoping to gain some land for their families. There also was the possibility of moving up through the social hierarchy through the military. This sudden influx was also of benefit to the government. Land, which had previously been sitting empty or abandoned, was suddenly made useful again by the influx of new farmers. As the army ranks swelled, the Qin began to use this influx of men to attack and conquer their neighbors. They conquered the smaller states of Chao in 260 BC, and then the Zhu in 256. They were not the only ones on the move, though. The Qi and the Chu also invaded and conquered some of the smaller, weaker states. It became clear that the final battle for all of China would be a three-way battle between the Qin, the Qi, and the Chu. That brings us to the man of the hour, Yang Chang. The son of a concubine and the king of the Qin, Shuang Hsiang, 
He took the throne at age 13 when his father died in 247 BC, after ruling the Qin for only two years. For nine years, Ying Cheng was assisted in ruling the kingdom by generals, magistrates, and chancellors. But at 22, he was given full control of his kingdom. And he planned to make the Qin not just the most powerful state in China, but he wanted to conquer all of China and unite it under his banner. Chang would see this become a reality no matter the cost. His ruthlessness was unmatched. Through this combination of ruthlessness and the largest army in China, the other states slowly began to bend to his will. I have a map with the conquests of the Qin up on the website to help with the geography of the Chinese states. In 225, the Qin conquered the Wei. In 223, they conquered the Chu. And the Qi were reluctantly and finally subdued in 221 BC. For the first time in history, China was one nation. It was forged into this one nation by bravery, blood, and brutality. After the conquest of China, Chang changed his name to the famous name we know him today as, Qin Shi Huangdi, which literally translates to the first emperor of China. After 25 years of conquest, China was finally under one banner. A new age of dynasties had begun in China. And this new age would last for centuries. But not in the way that we normally think of dynasties. Typical dynasties, like the pharaohs of Egypt, for example, were a succession of kings from fathers to sons or grandfathers to grandsons. Either way, the succession of the throne was through blood. But the Qin dynasty was different. There was only one Qin ruler, Qin Shi Huangdi. So calling this period of Chinese history a dynasty is a bit of a misnomer. But we call it a dynasty because of the lasting legacy this one man would impose not just on China, but on the world. As emperor, though, it was not all bad news and brutality as it was during his conquest. He ordered new roads all over China, and canals and irrigation systems to help the crops. He restarted the Chinese calendar so the entirety of the country would be on the same system. And he had numerous other projects. His reforms and projects were liked so much that there was a celebratory inscription made two years into the emperor's reign. It reads as follows. Exalting agriculture and suppressing the non-essential, he, the emperor, enriches the people. With regard to implements, measurements have been unified. In writings, characters have been standardized. Whenever the sun and moon shine, wherever boat and cart can reach, people all live out their allotted span, and each is satisfied. That doesn't sound too bad. However, as much as he embraced reform and upgrading the empire, he was vehemently against the new religion that was sweeping across China, 
Confucianism. So much so that he issued this decree, quote, Now the emperor, having united and grasped the world, has discriminated between black and white and established a single authority. But some subjects are partial to their own learning and join together to criticize laws and teachings. In the court, they criticize it in their hearts, and outside they debate it in the streets. To discredit the ruler is a means of showing superiority. If things like this are not banned, then the ruler's power will be diminished above and factions will form below. To ban them is appropriate. I would ask that you burn all the records in the scribes' offices which are not chins. Anyone who ventures to discuss songs and documents will be executed in the marketplace." End quote. Honestly, the first time as I was reading that, I thought the emperor put it rather eloquently. I mean, a way to say, to burn all books and records. But then you get to that last line, and that's more of what you would expect from an emperor. Especially one with a record like Shi Huangdi. The only books and records that survived this purge were books of medicine, gardening, and divination. Now this declaration from the emperor may seem harsh, and it is, but we have to look at it from his perspective. Shi Huangdi had just unified a country that had been at war with itself for centuries. That much bad blood is not going to go away very quickly. And while a declaration like this probably won't help calm the people down, it did do one important thing. Show China who the boss was. You can conquer all your neighbors and territories, but if you do not lay down the law and remind them who is in charge now, you will have not created an empire. You will have merely brought a hiatus to the civil war tearing the country apart. And that is what Shi Huangdi was trying to do. And while it did not manifest itself in the way that he had hoped, a long-lasting dynasty from his sons and grandsons to rule China, it did lay the groundwork for future dynasties of China. And at a rather early stage of history, China was able to pull itself out of its split, broken past and into a powerful, dominating future. But of all the projects, policies, and propaganda of the first emperor of China, by far the two most impactful projects of Shi Huangdi's career were his tomb and the beginning of the construction of the Great Wall. However, we will cover the Great Wall of China in a future segment on this show, so I'm not going into any details about the Great Wall here. We'll cover all of that when we get to it. But the point of this is that but the whole point of this is that Shi Huangdi's impact on China was merely not limited to the time he spent on the Chinese throne. His impact would not be merely on China, but it would spread to the world, even to this day. It was almost as if Shi Huangdi knew this, that his legacy would live on for thousands of years, and that his tomb would be worthy of a man who impacted history in such a way. And while there certainly are a number of elaborate and impressive tombs in the world, the pyramids, the Mazima Mazalos, the Valley of Kings, etc., the tomb of Shi Huangdi 
is in a category all to itself. The tomb of Shi Huangdi would be like none other in the world. For the first emperor of China, only the most elaborate, unique, and well-guarded tomb would suffice. And just like the pharaohs of Egypt, Shi Huangdi began constructing his tomb almost immediately after he had unified and pacified China. Sima Qian, an ancient Chinese historian who lived about a hundred years after the first emperor, wrote this about the tomb, quote, After he had united the world, more than 700,000 convicted laborers were sent there. They dug through three springs, poured in liquid bronze, and secured the sarcophagus. He ordered artisans to make crossbows triggered by mechanisms. Anyone passing before them would be shot immediately. They used mercury to create rivers, and the great seas, wherein the mercury was circulated mechanically. On the ceiling were celestial bodies, and on the ground, geographic features. The candles were made of oil of dugong, which is not supposed to burn out for a long time. End quote. The tomb was supposed to be a miniature kingdom for the emperor. They even decorated the ceiling with pearls to represent the stars. I honestly struggled to find words to describe this tomb, or even where to begin. The rivers and seas of liquid mercury, or the fact that the mercury was moved by machines. Or how about the crossbows that were set to shoot anyone who entered the tomb? Or the three springs of liquid bronze? Or that nothing in the tomb itself was the most impressive thing buried with the emperor? That honor is reserved for his terracotta army. The terracotta army is literally an army of life-size soldiers made entirely out of pottery. All of these soldiers are facing east. They are standing in battle formation as if to guard something behind them. These soldiers are guarding the tomb of Shi Huangdi. But the presence of these soldiers begs a number of questions. Questions like, why did the emperor make these terracotta warriors? How did they make them? How many soldiers are there? What kinds of soldiers are they? Do they have weapons? What do they look like? What is their purpose? Let's start with the how many question first, just to give us a basic understanding of the army. The question of how many though keeps evolving as archaeologists continue to find more and more of these soldiers surrounding the tomb of the first emperor. Right now, archaeologists have uncovered more than 8,000 terracotta warriors. There very possibly could be more buried in the area around the tomb. I have pictures of what these terracotta warriors look like up on the website. Each warrior stands about 2 meters or 6 feet tall and weighs about 272 kilograms or 600 pounds. If you were to stand each of the terracotta warriors on top of each other, the height would reach over 1,600 meters or more than 52,000 feet. That is equivalent of three and a half great pyramids stacked on top of each other. But researchers and archaeologists believe that there are even more of these soldiers 
buried in the tomb of the emperor itself, or hidden in some vaults elsewhere in the immediate area. Each warrior is armed with a bronze-headed spear, a dagger, or a halberd. Halberds are spear-like weapons with an axe head on the end as well as the tip of a spear. Halberds were mostly thought to be a European weapon during the Middle Ages, but the Chinese had them hundreds of years earlier. Each soldier is also wearing traditional Chinese infantry armor, which consists of a breastplate, shoulder pads, shin guards, and a kilt. This kilt was probably made of leather and offered another level of protection to a soldier's legs without weighing the soldier down as much as leg armor would. Each soldier in the terracotta army is like a snowflake. They are all different. Each one has a different face, pose, and hairstyle. Even the armor varies from soldier to soldier. This fact has led some historians to believe that each soldier was modeled after a different soldier in the Imperial Army. These unique distinctions between the soldiers offer us today unique insight into the cultural, economic, and military history for that time period in China. This incredible attention to detail shows the skill of the Chinese pottery workers. But their skill did not just stop with the warriors. There are also terracotta horses and bronze chariots amongst the warriors. Each of these horses are life-size as well. And the entire terracotta army, horses and chariots included, are in typical Chinese battle formation. Now that we know what the terracotta army is and how many, we can begin to look at the why. Why was the terracotta army built? The answer to this question is twofold. First off, the Emperor of China had just united the nation. There was still a lot of tension and bad blood between the different peoples in China, as evidenced by the civil war that erupted not even a year after the death of the Emperor. And with this newly united nation, the Emperor knew that it was going to be very difficult to get volunteers to be buried with him to guard his tomb. The emperor was petrified that his tomb would be desecrated after his death. Hence the need for the terracotta army and the crossbows set to shoot. So the pottery soldiers were a unique substitute to men. But their purpose was not just to guard the tomb. They were also there to help the emperor conquer the afterlife. Shi Huangdi wanted his empire to last forever. And in order for that to happen... He would need an army of the dead to conquer the afterlife for him. So we have answered the what and the why of the Terracotta Army, the sixth wonder of the ancient world. Next week, we will answer the other questions surrounding the Terracotta Army, as well as look at why the Terracotta Army doesn't exist in the historical record. Only recently brought back to the light, the Terracotta Army is still a fascinating discovery. Once uncovered, it has proven to be one of the most awesome, impressive, yet frustrating archaeological sites in the world. But we will cover all of that next week, when we continue to give the Terracotta Army the attention it has been denied for centuries. Yeah.
Sous-titrage